0: Welcome to Regulated and Relational, the bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. What are restorative practices? How are restorative justice and trauma-informed strategies related? And why is it important that we look at restorative and trauma-informed practices as the same paradigm-shifting work? Join Ginger Healy and Julie Bean from ATN as they welcome Joe Brummer into studio today to share his expertise on restorative practices and implementing restorative work in schools. Let's join the conversation.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Ginger Healy. And I'm Julie Bean. And today we're going to be diving into restorative practices and learning more about what that means and how restorative work and trauma-informed work are related I can't wait to introduce you to today's guest, who is one of the foremost experts on developing trauma-informed approaches to restorative practices in schools and organizations. He's also a dear friend of ATN and a personal friend, Joe Brummer. Welcome, Joe.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
3: I want to brag a little on Joe before we ask him to share more about how he came to this work. Joe is a private consultant, and he's the author of the book entitled Building a Trauma-Informed Restorative School. It's a powerful book because he packs in so many solid approaches and strategies and skills Joe has been a speaker at every single one of our Creating Trauma Sensitive Schools Conference, and he's a member of ATN's PD Collaborative, a group of consultants and experts who together provide the whole depth and breadth of helping schools and child-serving organizations to navigate trauma-informed, resilience-building, and restorative journey. And Joe has graciously volunteered his time on our conference planning committee, where we've gotten to know him even better. And we see his passion for children, for recognizing the struggles of those children, and for bringing forth both trauma-informed and restorative solutions. His passion is contagious. So Joe, we're really thrilled to have you here today. And let's start, often where we do, in how did you get into this work? What brought you to restorative
2: practices? You know, right off the start, you know, I'm pretty open in in both my workshops, my book, my training, that I'm a trauma survivor. And originally, as I started doing this work, it was around bringing the ideas of nonviolence, peace, that we don't have to hurt each other kind of ideas. And I quickly learned that one of the ways we regularly hurt each other is through forms of punishment Mm -hmm. and rewards and behaviorism and, and manipulation. I came to this work and I first started talking about being the survivor of two hate crimes, two completely separate events that just by chance I happened to be the survivor of and the victim mm-hmm. of or however you phrase that. And then, you know, it, it was longer after doing the work that I started saying, you know, there's this whole other side of Joe that I don't tell people. And that's that I'm also a child abuse survivor. And, you know, I, I, not that my parents are horrible people or anything, I think they tried their best and they did their best with what they had. But unfortunately, they themselves had their own issues and weren't regulated people when they were trying to be parents, and so that meant a lot of like physical, emotional, psychological, just stuff. Mm-hmm. I also witnessed my mom at a really young age. My brother and my two sisters watched uh, from a car while my mom was almost beat unconscious by a, a motorcycle gang, wow. uh, some part of an initiation process. I mean, just as children, we you know we live through some just really weird, horrific stuff that put me on a path to want to understand there's got to be better ways. It's mm-hmm. not that I wanted people to know trauma or restorative practices. I just was convinced there are better ways to help kids who are struggling than to, to, make them, to make them suffer. And that's what we do. When we don't like the behavior we see in a kid, we make them suffer for it. And that for years has broke my heart. It's just taken me all these years to figure out how to tell people that's what I want to see stop. Mm-hmm. So the book was an attempt at that. My trainings have been an attempt at that. You know, showing up at conferences is an attempt at that. It's like, how do we get people to see that when our kids are really struggling, the last thing they need you to do is make them suffer. What they need you to do is step in, give them a hug, mm-hmm. tell them they're okay, tell them that wasn't acceptable and help them clean up their mess with a really loving hand. Right. You can be really firm. In fact, you can be really, really firm and still be a loving, compassionate person. But you can't do that while you're inflicting suffering on someone. The more I've done the work, the more I've wanted to do the work. You could say I love kids or you could say, you know what I do. And and that's weird because that was never something in anywhere in my history of being a human that I think, oh, I can't wait to have kids or I can't wait to work with kids like it was the last thing on my list. You know, my first things were like be a rock star, maybe (laughs) write a couple books, you know, this was not in my list of things to do. Then I realized the kid I'm really helping is this little kid who, you know, survived bullying, survived, you know, all kinds of, you know, 13 years of Catholic schools being a young gay kid. Somehow, I think what I'm really doing is paving the way to make a world where a little kid like me would have done okay.
3: Mm. And since
2: I know there are dozens of little kids out there like me, you know.
3: That's let's, incredible. Let's do
2: something, and so that's a lot of my drive for this is a little compulsive. Like I can't help it; like I have to keep doing this. And so I, you know, I'd love to just get a job at the local grocery store, <laughs> anything but this. And and yet here I am, and I keep doing it because I feel like I have to. I also want to, but the fact I feel like I have to makes it. It's not like I could stop tomorrow mm-hmm. if I wanted. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's a calling for you, and it's yes. a gift for all of us. And for those of our listeners who are new or have not heard the term restorative justice or restorative practices, why don't you kind of give us a good definition and then also talk about can we use those terms interchangeably? Restorative practices, restorative justice, all of that.
2: Yeah, that's those are great questions too because I think we get caught up in that stuff. And so initially, restorative justice in this country came to the criminal justice system in the 80s, when a guy named Howard Zare wrote a book called Changing Lenses. And that book sort of like opened people up to these ideas that incarceration, criminal justice systems that are punitive weren't actually helping people because they excluded community and they excluded the victim voice. And so rather than really creating justice, we were just punishing people for their offenses. And the reality is, there's not a lot of accountability in that. And that's what people really want, is accountability. And when you punish someone, they can serve out the punishment without ever accepting responsibility or accountability for their actions. And so I can serve out my sentence and still say I didn't do anything. And for a victim, well, where does that leave them? And how do they heal? Restorative Justice sort of then the ideas of it, which are really pulled from, that we're not doing indigenous practices. But a lot of the ideas have come from Native Americans, African wisdom, the Maori people of New Zealand had a big influence on the current restorative justice movement in general. You know, Aborigine people from Australia also, again, which that's a word that encompasses a lot of people. And so I'd use those terms to give you the idea, but again, know that they're broad terms. And the idea is that a lot of that thinking saw wrongdoing as a break in relationships, where we tend to see this stuff as a break in rules. And so the big shift is to say, wait, we didn't just break a rule that we get punished for. We actually brought harm to our communities and broke up relationships that we need because there's an acknowledgement in that thinking that communities actually have responsibility to each other. Like we're not all just individuals making our way. We are a we. And that gets lost in a lot of our culture today. There's a lot of I, 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 me, me, Mm me, and not enough we. And so we often don't think how things impact each other We think, oh, my behavior doesn't impact anyone. Unfortunately, when we look at someone who's committed a wrongdoing, we create the culture which that happens. That's also true within our school systems. So when we brought these ideas of restorative justice into schools as primarily an alternative to suspensions, that's really how it got sold to schools, which Mm -hmm. is funny because that's not really what this is about. It's not an alternative to suspension. It's an alternative to building community and how that's done. And instead of being a school that has an alternative to suspensions, we then become a school that promotes a culture that doesn't need suspensions. So it's a really big shift in our thinking. And so it's not that different when you hear, you know, say Matthew Portell from the Trauma-Informed Educators Network say, this is a paradigm shift. Well, it is. Interestingly enough, a lot of those ideas bleed over into the trauma-informed ideas. Then you hear that question of what's the difference between restorative justice and restorative practices if you ask me it's just semantics to be honest there are people who feel more strongly about it i don't i feel like we get tripped up on these words the belief is and and i'm not going to say i don't understand it i don't necessarily agree with it is the idea is that in the criminal justice world we have restorative justice Mm -hmm. and that we didn't want to use criminal language and criminal justice language in schools which is odd because we've been doing that for decades, but they don't want to bring that into school. So they call what we do in schools restorative practices, as if somehow children aren't deserving of justice. So that's where I start to have a problem. And, And my first moment of questioning was I went to a conference on restorative justice and there was a workshop on restorative justice being taught by kids. And a question came up, what's the difference between restorative practices and restorative justice? And this young woman's answer basically said nothing that adults are too afraid to talk about children deserving justice and so they Mm -hmm. call it practices because they need to water it down for us and i was like "Ooh, that hurt that was like a kick and i was like all right that's cool and then i heard a, a guy who i'm really really i admire his work really a lot eric butler who was featured in a documentary film called circles and so we had a showing of that film here in connecticut and somebody again asked that big famous question, what's the differences between restorative justice and restorative practices? And Eric looked very kindly at the person and said, words. And I was like, rock on. Mm Because it's the same mindset, paradigm shift. It's the same heart change. And whether you call it practices or justice, trauma-informed, whatever you want to call it, what we're really saying is there's more to this story that it's not rule-breaking, that it's actual relationship harm, Mm -hmm. and that some of it comes from childhood experiences, trauma, lagging skills, that people don't do these things because they're bad people. They do these things because there's reasons, and that our typical systems don't address them. I'm one of those people that thinks words are really important. Anyone that's read my book knows that I'm really bent on language and words. And at the same time, sort of living a little cognitive dissonance, at the same time I think words get in our way. And whether or not we label this restorative practices, restorative justice, trauma-informed, nonviolence, I don't know, call it whatever you need to call it so you can sleep at night and get it done. And which sounds weird, because I know there's a bunch of people out there right now who are like, I can't believe he's saying this. And the reality is you have to start focusing on what it means here and not what it means here. And so if you're worried about what it means here, then you're worried about restorative justice versus restorative practices.
0: Mm-hmm. It doesn't
2: matter what you call it. It matters how you show up to do it. Because again, these are not we all know this about trauma-informed. It's not something you do. It's yeah. something you show up and become. Yeah. Restorative justice and restorative practices are exactly the same. You can't go through the motions of that stuff. You can't run a circle or a conference or restorative chat if you didn't show up with the right heart. Yeah. I, sometimes in my workshops, I show this video of this third grade restorative circle, where you watch this educator go through all the movements of restorative practices, use the restorative questions, and it's the most unrestorative circle I've ever seen. Yeah. And yet she was doing it well, but she wasn't being it.
0: And mm-hmm. so it
2: didn't come off. And and that's where I think those word choices become, I don't want to call them semantic they just get in the way, I think they just trip us up. So. Usually when people are like, what's the difference between restorative justice and restorative practices, I'm like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I don't care what you want to call it. I want you to do it. I want you to know what it's about. Mm -hmm. And so whether you call it justice or or practices, know that it's hard work. Know that it's a paradigm shift on how we see other human beings' behaviors. Not just children. It's adults, too. Like we're all, you know, borrow Ross Green's line. Kids do well if they can. Humans do well if they can. It's right. just that we you know we have stuff in our lives that trips us up. We know that our cortex shuts down when we're under stress. And some of us are under a lot of stress. Right now we're all under some stress. You know, we're not at our best. And so how do we start responding to that stuff rather than knee-jerk reacting, which is exactly what we do? Mm-hmm. How do we start responding to it all so that We can have a restorative chat with the kid. We can hold them accountable for the harm they bring, but do that in the most loving, compassionate, graceful way and not do it from a place of anger. Because we all know when you dish out punishment, right? We don't dish out punishment based on what learning outcomes we have for this child on discipline, right? We dish out punishments based on how pissed off we are. And so the punishment isn't actually looking at the outcomes that we want for this child. What we're looking at is how do we send a message, wait, let me get this straight. You're punishing this kid to send a message to those kids. Mm-hmm. So you're basically using a child to do communication. Let's not talk about how messed up that thinking is and how just it feels immoral to do that to a child. Like, I'm going to use you to send a message to the rest of them. And very often we're like, well, we have to do something or, or they'll all go off the rails. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm, No that's not how kids work. <laughs> Just, it's not. And anyone that's hung around kids knows that's not really how it works. Kids are a little more complicated than that and a little more nuanced and human. And so to narrow it all down to, I got to suspend this kid to send a message to the other kids. Yeah, that's all sorts of wrong. And yeah. so how do we do better?
3: My next question is going to be, how do we do that? Like, where is the beginning for uh, so if I'm a listener and I'm an educator, or even if I'm not an educator, I'm a parent or I work with children in any other way, how do I start making this paradigm shift? What are some of the things I need to start doing and thinking about to become what you just described?
2: That's a huge question too, because it's going to be different for everyone. So I always tell people, that I think the first place to start is to always figure out where you are and where you want to be. So start mm-hmm. with the end in mind. Like, say you want to have a restorative classroom, or you want to be a restorative parent, and that also means being trauma-informed. And I want to just add this in here, that you can't really be restorative, trauma-informed, unless you're also thinking through the lens of equity, through a lens of racial justice, of LGBTQ justice, uh, kids with disabilities. We need to start showing up and seeing each other's humanity. And so that's what equity work is about. I hear equity work described in a whole bunch of ways, but at the heart of it, Equity work is about trying to see each other's humanity, Mm -hmm. regardless how we show up. Like, it doesn't matter what body you showed up in. You're still a human, and we need to recognize your humanity. And so right off the start, the first step is finding out where you are and where you need to go and being really honest about that. So if you know and you can rate yourself as a punitive parent, you can rate yourself as a punitive educator and be honest about that and say, I don't want to be that anymore. I need to learn some new strategies. Now you know where you are, where you, mm-hmm. you want to go. And now you get to start mapping that out. And I always think the first step of that is learning about trauma, learning about the neurobiology of stress, not for your kids, for you. Start with awesome. you. Goes back to that Bruce Perry line. Matthew Portell has a similar quote. I think Melissa Satan has this quote of dysregulated adults will dysregulate even regulated children. I've heard that a version of that from a whole bunch of different people, mm-hmm. including myself. And so the first place we have to start is you can't help children do anything if you aren't regulated. As the name of the show would say, we need to be regulated and relational. Well, you have to be ready for that. So if you're tired, hungry, haven't slept, haven't exercised, you're physically, you know, dysregulated, and now put some stress on top of that that you're overwhelmed by, and now you think you have capacity to help a child work through their stress. Hmm. Yeah, no, that doesn't work. So the first starting point has to be getting yourself regulated, and oddly enough, that's where I learned over the past few years where I had to get if I wanted to help schools. And as we went into the pandemic, and me being a trauma survivor, this pandemic brought my, like, I literally thought I've conquered PTSD. And then this pandemic came along, and I'm back to waking up at three in the morning screaming. And so it's like, all right, well, let's get me back to where I need to be, which is regulated. Mm -hmm. So I started paying a lot more attention to my sleep, a lot more attention to the food I'm eating, a lot more attention to how often I meditate and take care of me. I always want that to be the starting point for people, especially if you recognize that you are a parent that has had a traumatic childhood. Because mm-hmm. I must have heard my mom say a thousand times, I'm never gonna treat you kids like my mom treated me. You can make that promise all you want, but if you didn't heal that trauma, you are going to pass it down. And so the starting point always has to be you. And I know there's a bunch of people right now who are like, Shit.
3: Well, that's what I was <laughs> yeah. going yeah, to they, they just turned it off, right? They just turned it like, off. Right? You know, like, stay with us, I want to hear
2: this guy. You know, but that's really the starting point. Like, I can't even go in and coach an educator on their classroom if I can't stay regulated enough to coach that teacher. Right. Like, if I'm not in that space, and trust me, I, I, over this pandemic, I had some rough goes of doing that work. There's two parts of that that are important. One, when we recognize that we are the starting point then we recognize our feelings are contagious that whatever state of being we're in we're going to pass to mm-hmm. other people you know we all know that the energy in a room changes when so and so walks in and that can either be positive or negative like we all have that person in our life who like walks into a room and lights it up you know and then we all know those people that walk into a room and like shrink it that happens with our children that's called co-regulation that is neuroception that's polyvagal theory at its best And so when we start understanding that how we show up impacts others, then we start thinking about, all right, I'm the starting point. Then when we get into a classroom or a school, then we have to realize that not only are we the starting point that we have to start making it so that everybody else is the starting point. And we realize that it's each of us individually showing up that creates the dynamic of culture and it's relationship work. And then it's structural work. And so mm-hmm. we have to stop putting the weight of this on teachers to be trauma-informed teachers because we need trauma-informed systems, yes. which means systems need to look at how we do the work. Systems okay. need to look at who this work is targeting and who it's helping and who it's getting in the way of. I have a really good friend, Justin Carbonella, who always says that doing this work is, in, is in, a very intentional work, mm-hmm. that nothing is an accident. Like we are waking up to do good things on purpose. And I love every time he says it, I'm like, yes. It's like when we wake up in the morning and show up at a school to teach them how to do circles, to teach them about the neurobiology of stress or polyvagal theory, neurosequential model, whatever you know you attach on to, the whole point of doing that is to help people realize how the system is made up of people and how that system then influences other people. And if we change both the people that make up the system and the system, we can make incredible change. The catch is, are we willing to be present and honest and authentic enough to do that?
1: Yeah, and vulnerable. I'm thinking about that third grade teacher who knew the motions and walked through the motions, but maybe wasn't ready to just be vulnerable and authentic and like you're saying. You know, I love several of the things that you have taught before going through my head. And a couple that I want to kind of touch on is I'm thinking of this one matrix that you put up. And basically the whole idea that you pull from it is this work works best when you do it with, you know, right, you're not not standing back and watching it. You're in the thick of it, side by side, parallel with. And the other thing that goes along with this, but I don't know where you want to take it, but that. When you're walking to that school and you're training, you training everybody in the building. And in fact, one of the things you say is like that front desk person, yeah. she or he is like probably one of your most important persons mm-hmm. that need to be in the training. And most times they're not even invited to the training.
2: The width box. If there are a dozen different versions of it out there, the particular version that I use is called the relationship matrix, which is from two brilliant women, Dorothy Vandering and Kathy Evans, and their book, the Little, the Little Book of Restorative Justice in Education. And it's the whole idea that the way we implement this work has to be done through the same spirit of the work. In other words, I can't come into a school and do this to teachers. Mm-hmm. And I can't come and do this for teachers. I have to do this with a community. And that means the whole community. And so I have, a, you know, a, a way that I think that that works best is that I can't come into a school or a district and do this for you. Your district has to do it for itself. And my job is to guide you through the process of that. And so it's gotta be an inside job Mm because nobody knows your community, the resources, the roadblocks, the things you already have in place, the things you wish were in place. No one knows that better than the people who are in it. And we have to believe in the wisdom of communities. Communities know how to take care of themselves It's just that sometimes they need some background information on, like, the neurobiology of stress. They need a little background information on what are other schools doing that's working and not working, and how do we structure it well? What systems are, like, trauma-informed and which ones aren't? And, you know, it's going through that gamut of, like, well, do I use PBIS or do I use restorative practices? And again, at the end of the day, it all comes down to the shift. Is Mm -hmm. this collaborative? Are we doing it with everyone involved and Mm -hmm. is it an inside job because if you hired a bunch of people to come into your school and then have them change it for you it's not sustainable. It might work for a little while because everyone's like gonna people please and follow directions. But eventually this has to come from within. Educators have to like harness this in their being and I'm sorry you can't have someone come in and do that to them. And so Mm -hmm. that with has to be there. And then I believe in the team cohort model where we go in we train teams Mm -hmm. at every single school and then we bring the teams of a district together to figure out their roadblocks their hurdles and always think of long-term planning three years ahead like what are we rolling out what pd needs to back that up what procedural and policy changes need to back that up so we're always thinking strategically ahead a catch to that is that it needs to include everyone that comes in contact with children. right? And so yeah. you can't have a trauma-informed school when the bus driver's never heard of trauma. You know, that's the first person kids see in the morning, might be the bus driver. Mm-hmm. And so we need to make sure that everybody gets this. And you are right, My one of my favorite people in a building is the front desk people in the office.
0: Because
2: yeah. when you go to a school, if they've been there for a while, it is likely they know the parents, they know the delivery people, they know the mail carrier, they know all the teachers, they know all the students, they know the kids that come to the office frequently. They are also the face of what will happen to a student when they're sent to the office. So how a child is treated when they're sent to the office to talk to you know, the higher ups, like that's the first face they're probably gonna see. And is that person an understanding face that says, hey, it's your third time this week, how are you doing? or is that person like oh you again you again Like, this <laughs> yeah. is a key person in our buildings to become trauma-informed i pay attention when i first go to a school like my first visit into a school i'm always a little cautious of like how welcome do i feel as the consultant the outsider could i slip in the back door and no one saw me i've slipped into schools gone to the front office and had no one question my presence and i'm like mm-hmm. this is not acceptable like yes. kids cannot feel safe in a building where some guy can come in the back door you know along with that if i walk into a building and like the front desk people are like making it really difficult for me to like feel welcome then that's a problem too mm-hmm. cuz then how can we be a trauma informed space when that's what's again co-regulation mm-hmm. contagious emotions what if i'm a parent coming yeah. in and schools I really uncomfortable welcome. for me yeah. i didn't have a really good experience in school as a kid and now i got to come here for my kid how are we hold in space for our parents and i think that front desk you know, liaison, that's a person in your building that gets so underrated. Mm-hmm. And so all the front desk people out there are cheering right now. And, <laughs> like I do, I just think that's yeah. a person who we don't, and in all the places where I've pulled that front desk and said, let's have them do some of the key work, they're amazing because they know, they know how to get a message to anybody in the building. They know how to mass communicate with people. They know how to put structures in pace that every teacher can access. They're just used to doing this. They also know how to coordinate lunchroom staff, bus people, because they do this all the time. We just don't recognize that they bring all that to the table. So I really want people to look around the building and say, who are the key players here? And they are. Custodians have power over mm-hmm. students. I've run several circles where I brought in custodians into like the mix, and they were the ones that said, hey, kids, this is not acceptable behavior. I have to clean up your messes, and I don't want to work here anymore when you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And the kids are like... We, we love Mr. Smith. He doesn't want to work here. Like you can change behavior through relationships. Yes. You don't have to punish and suffer kids. Relationships and influence will change behavior. And the neuroscience backs that up. And so look at the people in your building. I know that when I was going to school, you know, one of the people that was really important in my life was the cafeteria. Like the woman who you checked mm-hmm. out with at the cafeteria just really was great to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all the kids, I went to a Catholic high school and all the seniors got to have these senior sweaters, and I didn't really have the money for that. So, this cafeteria woman bought me my sweater. And to this day, I think about, like, I'm 52 years old, I still think about this woman buying me a sweater. And so, I think we don't recognize the power of some of the people in our school building.
1: I'm sitting and enjoying that and just really feeling the power, you know, of what you're saying. One of the things that you have talked about is when you train or when who you're training continues the training, there are fun ways to do it. Like I love your, the phrase, there are fun ways to transfer knowledge. You know, I just want to talk about give us ideas, give strategies and tips of how to do this. It all goes back to that culture and that this stuff can be done way in advance. It doesn't have to be reactive. It can be fully responsive in the beginning. So that was one of the things that I, walked away with after talking to you was fun ways to transfer knowledge.
2: Even that term came about because I noticed that schools, even when they contact me, like I have two emails this morning from brand new districts asking if I'll talk to them. And it's always training. We want to talk to you about training. And I'm like, I don't want to train people. Like that's not what I do. And so I don't want to be seen as a trainer. Mm -hmm. I want to be seen as the consultant that helps for school. And so training is a part of that. We need to transfer knowledge. And training and professional development do that. But they're not the only ways to do that. And so book clubs are really fun. Movie nights are really fun. PLCs, little professional learning communities, where you set up little blocks and you train them in small groups. Again, I did a lot of work with Secretary Cardona in Meriden Public Schools. We used a PLC model where we brought little groups together from each school and we had them keep coming back together to keep learning together. And it was incredibly effective. And sometimes it was training. Sometimes it was just exchange of knowledge between the folks in the room. Because sometimes the best source of education material is fellow educators. Mm -hmm. And we don't give those opportunities to people. But then bring some parents in the room, train some students and have them do the training with the teachers. Like there are lots of ways to do the work and training isn't the only way. I'm also not a big fan of large organizations that come in and do big trainings of hundreds of people at a time. And, and I just don't think that's effective. You, you can't teach relational work to a hundred people at a time because there's no chance to actually experience relational work with a hundred people in the room mm-hmm. and so I don't really like big trainings so much uh, I mean I, I love doing them for atN yes. and, and then beyond that you'll even know when we did the pre-conference you know that we did at the last conference I cut it off at like 35 people because I wanted them to understand what it feels like to yes. be in a relational space and and in circle we are relational we can be that but you it's hard to do that for large groups of mm-hmm. people and so i really think when we do a transfer of knowledge part of that has to be experiential mm-hmm. and what does it feel like to have these kind of relationships because a trauma informed you know restorative school is a relationship based school we get hurt in relationships and we heal in relationship mm-hmm. like we we're not we are social creatures and so to think that we could just sit people down and didactively have them do this Yes, it is not productive. And then the other model that we have out there that I that I honestly just think is destructive is these training of trainer models where we train people in four days to be trainers of something they have very little lived experience with. And so I've been running circles and doing restorative justice work for, you know, going probably on 15 years now. I've done it in prisons. I've worked in criminal justice. I've worked in courts. I've worked in schools, and so when I come to this work, I'm coming with a a whole bunch of experiences of doing the work. I've even done circle and, and nonviolent communication work in Fortune 500 companies. And so I'm bringing with me 15 years of experience of like, what does it mean to teach this material and work with this material? I don't see how we could train somebody in four and five days and then send them into a school and say, well, they went through a training of trainers, now they can train everybody else on something they've never actually done. But we're talking about wrongdoing, people who've been hurt and harmed. Um, and, and you're gonna send someone to train other people to do something they've never actually done. Right. And I, I, I have strong aversions to that. And yet there are models out there doing that constantly in the trauma-informed world, the restorative justice world. We're going out there and doing these models of like, we're asking people to train other people and stuff. They don't have the real uh, embodiment of yet because I just haven't had time.
1: I've been in um, one of your circles, Joe, and I've been in other circles, and I will say, you know, circles hopefully get to this level of vulnerability that you can share intimate things, but there has to be that level of safety first, mm-hmm. and that's the difference. You know, in a nutshell, is that what you're talking about that you bring. I felt very safe so that I could be vulnerable. Whereas in yeah. a different space I didn't. So I appreciate that. Yeah.
3: Doing it versus being it. And it takes longer to be it or become it than it does to learn how to do the actions of it. It is a journey, isn't it? To become trauma informed, to become, you know, restorative. Those are definitely journeys as opposed to trainings or skill sets that we get. Done. And
2: even after all this time, I'm still on the journey. You know, my favorite band has a line that says. Happiness ain't the end of the road, it is the road. And Mm -hmm. in my book, I sort of I borrowed that line and I said, look, a trauma-informed school is not the end of the road, it is the road. That's true of this work. Like trauma informed is not the goalpost. It's the path to get to the goalpost. And by the way, you'll never get to the goalpost. Mm -hmm. It's not and there's no point in that. The point is the journey of learning this material and day by day transforming ourselves first and then transforming the, the structures around us next. And so that kids can then have spaces to grow up whole. You know, we're, we're probably one of the few people that are trying to, like, work ourselves out of a job. I want to do my job so well that we have schools where children grow up and I don't need a job. I'm going to work at the grocery store because <laughs> I don't need to go into schools anymore and tell anybody of this stuff because we just get it. But mm-hmm. right now we don't and right now we're living in a world where because of the internet because of you know mass information transfers we literally are carrying the weight of everything around us yes. and our nervous systems are not designed for that our nervous systems were designed for us to get through the day with our small little client our little mm-hmm. tribe 40 people maybe and that's i've heard from Bruce Perry it's like 40 people should be mm-hmm. your like that's your network now we're expecting people to take on Everything for me, I had to like step back from that for a while because I was like watching the news all the time. I was reading books on trauma, then I'm doing work on in the courts. I was like, Oh my god, like I can't take this, I can't take all this in. And so, I think we have to be really and I call that nutrition. Nutrition is just not food, like what else are you putting in your body and your system? Mm -hmm. And I think we can only handle so much. And then we have to again, boundaries like we have to just set some boundaries for ourselves that say, Look, in order for me to have the capacity. To be there and present for other people, I'm going to have to take care of me. I don't mean that in the poisonous self-care word that we keep throwing at teachers. I mean like wellness. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean how
2: do we start like waking up every day and saying all the, the opposite messaging of what trauma does. Trauma teaches us I'm not worthy, I'm not lovable, I mess everything up. But well, we could be creating structures for people of wellness, where we can start doing this work, where we say, no, you, you are good enough, just rest. You, you're worthy and mm-hmm. worthy of rest and mm-hmm. worthy of taking on what you can take on and then asking for help when you need more and destigmatizing mental health, allowing wellness to be a part of our lives. And that includes our, our mental health. I'm hugely a proponent lately of just saying, I'm a person that lives with mental health struggles get over it. And most everybody around me is doing exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. And yet we all don't talk about it. We'll talk about our skin rashes and our dermatologists before we'll talk about our mental health. And at some point in time, I think that that needs to change so we can hold space for each other. And I don't know what will make that happen. Maybe another conference.
3: We could talk to you forever, and I love your passion about this work, about the journey. And I agree with you that it would be a beautiful day if we could work ourselves out of a job because there was no longer the need to be passionate about what's not there. But at the same time, I'm so happy that we have you on this journey, that we have you spreading the word and the passion that you have, and that we can call you our friend and colleague and probably invite you back to talk more, right? (laughs) At some point, it's been an incredible conversation and we're excited as the Attachment and Trauma Network. Ginger and I are headed to Chicago this summer to be at the NACRJ Conference for Restorative Justice and to try to help bridge trauma-informed and restorative practices, especially for children in particular, because that's part of our mission. So we're excited to see where that is going to continue to go as well.
2: And I'm super happy you're doing that because there's so many folks in the restorative justice world and the restorative practices world that think restorative practices are already trauma-informed. It's simply not true. And so we need that lens on regulation. That whole idea of the three R's, you know, I'll borrow Bruce Perry, regulate, relate, reason. Well, if you want to do a restorative chat with a kid, you want to do a circle with your class about what just happened and they're not Not regulated, it's not time to have that circle. So we have to be mindful of regulation, neurobiology of stress before we try to use a restorative practice to address something when nobody in that circle is passing that talking piece, regulated and relational. We really need to bring the lens that trauma-informed brings to restorative practices work so that when we ask the restorative questions, which if you need to know what that is, just Google the restorative questions, they will come up. Mm -hmm. When we ask those restorative questions, that we're regulated when we do it. Because when we're not, they don't come off as the same questions. They come off as accusatory, Mm -hmm. blame-based. But when we're regulated, we can ask those questions. They come from a space in our heart that can hold space for that other person, even though they just messed up, sometimes pretty big. And that lets us hold space for them and see their humanity, not through the lens of our dysregulation. And so, the fact you're bringing that to the restorative justice world, who sometimes believes that this isn't like a thing, super happy about that. I'm excited. I'm
3: excited to go. I'm excited to learn more about restorative practices from the other side of things and anything that we can help bring to this journey, you know, that we're about that. So, Joe, if people want to get in touch with you,
2: how do they do that? Easily visit my website at joebrummer.com. There's a contact form on there. People can absolutely reach out. I tell people all the time. They send me emails with questions, comments. I'm like super happy to answer them. I don't charge people for that. I don't even charge people for just planning conversations. I want people to do the work. And mm-hmm. I, I have other consultants that you know give me a hard time because I don't charge a lot of money for those things. But I really want you to do the work. And so if you have questions, you need resources Please feel free to, you know, visit my website, send me a note. Joe, can you point me in the right direction of a book I should read, a video? Yeah, I will. I, it might take me a couple of days to get back to people. I can't do it that quickly, but I will. I want people to have what they need right. to do the work. And I don't want you to have to pay for that if you don't have the money. And so feel free to reach out and I'm happy to help. And then, you know, I'll plug the book once. A lot of questions people might have, I answered them. I wrote the book really as an introduction to both of these worlds. And so for some people, the book is too basic because they're well past this. But for other people who've never heard of Trauma Informed or never heard of restorative practices, that's really who I, I wanted this book to be for. Because if you're new to both of them and you see them together right from the start, uh, we're gonna do better work, and so I absolutely invite people to pick that book up. You can either get it from any local BIPOC or LGBTQ bookstore, or you can go to Amazon and buy it there. If you do that, mm-hmm. please just go back and write a review because that's how things get popular on Amazon, and it would be a big help to me. You can buy it through our bookstore, yeah. I yes, I totally to forgot about that. <laughs> yes, you can. You can, in fact, buy it through the ATN bookstore. In which case, I think you should. Yeah, we're totally fine
3: with the local bookstores too and and Amazon if you've just got to have it tomorrow because I'm not sure we get it to you quite that fast. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for being here. And we're looking forward to our next episode. Thanks to everybody who joined in today. We'll see you next time.
0: This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Join us next time when our hosts, Julie and Ginger, will be talking to therapists, author and adoptive mom, Jane Samuel, about the power of using stories to help address our children's adversities. A special thanks to Lorraine Schneider, our editor, and Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment and Trauma Network, visit our website at www.attachtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through anchor.fm. I'm Christopher Schneider. Thank you for listening.